0: Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. In the 47th episode, I spoke with Andy Butt, who is a UX designer and CEO of innovation and design agency Clear Left. But Andy is probably even more known by curating a few very well known uh, conferences in the design community, such as Leading Design, which is a huge international conference bringing design leaders together. He also curates UX London conferences, and he helped set up the Brighton Digital Festival. So in this episode, we spoke about the biggest learnings from the last Leading Design Conference, which took place in November in London. We talked about why and how designers should say no to their managers. So what do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you don't agree with the work you're doing or the path that your company is taking? And finally we also talked about the current state of the design education. So if you're interested in design leadership, one thing that we also talked about in this episode is the lack of business literacy in design community and if you want to raise your business literacy, you can also sign up for the 7-day free mini MBA email course. So over the next 7 days you would get 7 business concepts in your inbox to learn more about the business. And to sign up for this uh, email course, you can just go to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Andy. Good. So Andy, you and your agency, are Clear Left, you're organizing this great design conference called Leading Design, right? So I thought it would be a great idea to maybe kick off with uh, sharing a little bit with our listeners what is Leading Design, how it came to be. And then we can go a little bit maybe into the learnings or uh, what did you learn or what were the big themes of the final or the latest uh, conference you had in
1: London? Excellent. Um, Well, that's a lovely place to start. So leading design came about maybe five years ago now, and um, it came about almost by accident, really. I was catching up with friends in London over coffee and and tea and cake, as you would do. I'm British. So, you know, lots of tea and cake gets consumed. I kind of catch up with my friends and and a lot of my friends, because I've been doing this for a really long time. I've been in the industry for 20 years. And so a lot of my friends are the designers. And they started out like me as as a design practitioner. And then maybe they became a design lead then maybe they found themselves managing three or four people. And then they maybe became a director and they were managing 20 or 30 people. And in some cases, they became VPs, managing hundreds of people. And over the course of maybe three or four months, I probably had a dozen or so of these coffees. And I basically found that I was having the same conversations like Groundhog Day, different people, but everyone was suffering the same challenges. Um, For a start, you know, they'd taken on jobs because they were great designers and the companies had kind of really decided they wanted to invest in design, which first and foremost was amazing because the previous three or four years, all of my designer friends were frustrated because the companies I worked with didn't get design and they were fighting for resource. So now these companies had realized, wow, design um, is a great tool for competitive advantage. And I think a lot of this came about from the fact that, you know, technology has become commoditized and actually you can get a lot less value um, from technology these days. And, and, and design, I think, is a defensible, competitive advantage. It's very, very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do well. It's very difficult to replicate. And, you know, you can, you can create value through design. And so a lot of my, a lot of my friends' companies have realized this and, and come to them and said, look, you know, we need to scale up our design effort. We need you to go out there and hire a bunch of designers. And so that was the first problem my friends were facing. Is like, wow, well, this is great, but there aren't enough designers to go around. So hiring and recruitment was really challenging. Once people had managed to hire and and kind of get these people on board, um, then they struggled to sort of get them motivated. So how can we build a great culture? How can we build a culture where designers thrive? How can we get them onboarded in a way that kind of allows them to hit the ground running? Then the problem my my friends were facing was like, how do we keep them? You know, we've got this sort of massive recruitment sort of um, thing going on. Maybe we've got an open headcount of 10 designers, but for every two designers to hire, one designer leaves. And so you're kind of two steps forwards, one step back. And so, again, a lot of things my friends were discussing is like, well, how do we how do we retain people? Um, You know, if you look at sort of California quite often, sort of the Bay Area, designers are sticking around in their roles for maybe like, you know, if you're lucky, 18 months or two years. If you're lucky, I see people moving around every nine months. There's lots of research that shows it takes about nine to 12 months for a designer to get up to speed and start delivering value. So the point at which you start being able to deliver your value back is the point where a lot of people are moving on. And then if people did stay for a while, how could you elevate design in the organization? How could you educate your peers in product, in engineering, in marketing, in sales, so they can really understand the value that design can bring? Um, And then also, you know, once you've got that going, how can you look after the career progression of your designers? How can you, how can you, rather than losing them because they want to jump around from job to job, to get a, a promotion, how can you kind of like grow a design team that kind of fits your exact needs? And so these are sort of the five or six trends that just kept coming up over and over again. And often over tea and cake, I was trying to sort of give my my friends advice around how you can scale, how you can source, how you can build a great employee brand, so employer brand, how you can sort of look after your team and, and, and nurture them, and and sell design into into their executives. And it was just getting really tiring. So I thought, well, rather than having to do this on a one-on-one basis, and I'm not getting paid for this, you know, I'm not a professional coach. Maybe I could get all these people together. And so, um, yeah, that's where Leading Design came from. We, 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 I, I kind of took a hunch that there would be enough design leaders in the UK and Europe to support a conference like this. And it was a big hunch because I was really scared that nobody would turn up. But I, I, put, I put the event on. We booked the date. We got some amazing people from around the world, people who had grown and scaled you know, big design teams. And people showed up. And actually, people showed up in mass. Um, our last uh, conference in New York, we had over 1,000 people on the wait list. It was crazy. Like We were blown away by the demand of this conference. And so the conference has been running for a few years now. We, the first three or four years, we were just running in London. And then we sort of branched out. Last year, we did New York. Um, In a couple of months' time, we're going to San Francisco. And again, the feedback we've been getting has been really, really fantastic. It feels like we've really hit a nerve. It feels like a lot of people are suffering. You know, they thought that by becoming a leader, all their problems would be solved, that somehow a job title and a budget and, and a seat at the table would somehow unlock This sort of you know trove of of kind of possibilities, but actually, what really has happened is it just created a whole bunch more. It's created a whole bunch of more challenges for my for my friends and for design leaders. And so, yeah, that's really the sort of the 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 gap we're trying to fill is how can we help design as an industry blossom? How can we help designers um, uh, that have got the seat at the table that they've been longing for? deliver the value that we know and believe and and have experience with um, that design can bring into the hands of as many people as possible. Um, But one of the lovely things, one of the sort of the surprising um, uh, sort of outcomes of leading design in general was that actually um, the conference has become a really, really safe space for a lot of people to kind of discuss their fears. You know, I think, you know, a lot of junior designers when they go and speak at conferences, they, You know, there's a bit of a bravado and they're sort of, you know, they're untouchable. They're amazing. Everything they do, you know, turns to gold. And I've been really humbled by how you can have people that are running design in some of the world's biggest companies. Just talk about all of their screw ups. Talk about how they were terrible designers or or terrible managers. You know, talk about how they did terrible one on ones or, or made mistakes recruiting or, you know, you know, found themselves in teams that weren't as diverse as they should have been and, and how they kind of went around solving those problems. So I've also been really, really impressed with the, the, the sort of the humility that a lot of design leaders have and the willingness to help pay forward and and help other design leaders coming up to sort of the behind them to avoid the mistakes that, that they, that they made. So it's, it's been wonderful so far. We're really, really enjoying it. And um yeah, looking forward to looking forward to San Francisco and getting stuck in with, with crafting the narrative around uh, London uh, in September, I think, or November. Yeah. November.
0: November. I think. Yeah. Take us back to the first conference. Take us back to the moment even before the conference came to be like, you had this idea. What was the next step you took?
1: Well, I I have a slight problem, and that slight problem is creating conferences. So I think it's <laughs> an adi- I think if I was still a practicing designer and technologist, I would probably be spending my evenings and weekends like hacking on some kind of cool, you know, tech startup. Um, but uh, yeah, my, my you know, you wouldn't want me building anything these days or designing anything. But what I can do is I can send a bloody good email. And I've got a really good connection of of people. So, you know, I ran the UK's first sort of digital design conference called Deconstruct, which ran for 10, 11 years. And actually, ironically, we're bringing that back for like a one-off kind of one-shot this September, which I'm really, really excited about. It's kind of more of a TED-type inspiring kind of, digital tech and culture conference. Um, I've run UX London for 10, 11 years, which is the longest running UX conference in Europe. And so I've kind of, you know, but, you know, we've run other events as well. So running events is is pretty straightforward. You know, I guess the two things are, um, you know, finding people who are willing to come and speak. And like I say, because I've got quite a good network, um, reaching out to friends of mine that have got into those positions is relatively straightforward. And because we've got a history of running really, really high quality events, you know, when I said, oh, I'm doing this conference and this is what's going on. Most of the people I reached out to were like, yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm down. So one hand, you know, building up a program and then the other hand, finding a venue, um, putting it on and then, you know, hoping that you've got enough network to kind of pull people in. So, yeah, finding a venue. So a lot of it was like running around London to different venues to see what the vibe was, to see whether we could afford it, to see, you know, you know basically you know i'm an experienced designer so making sure that the the physical space works making sure that the food is great making sure that it's it's central it's easy to get to are all kind of important transferable skills um and so once you've got the venue then it's just a case of like you know putting out there you know taking a punt you know any entrepreneur has to at some stage put their money where their mouth is take a risk and the risk was that if people didn't show up we would have lost a ton of money um Mm. but you have to have faith in your community you have to have faith in your your ability to feel signals and sense check and see whether the signals that you're feeling are are the signals that other people are feeling to the level or degree that there will be a market there and you know we put it out there and you know we sold out and you know the first one went down so well that immediately afterwards, everyone was like, we want to have another one. And so, you know, every conference, every product, every app, every feature is just a one-off and two people love it and then they want more. And so we had our market validation. We we saw that there was demand there. And then I guess, you know, two or three years on um, we noticed that we had lots of people coming from the US. Now, normally that's actually quite unusual. Normally you see in conference land, lots of Europeans going to America Very few Americans coming to the UK and Europe. Um, I think that's partly because, you know, unfortunately in America, people only get a very small amount of holiday time. Um, And, you know, you might have to take holiday time off to come to a conference. Some of it is just around the size of America and the number of events we're on. But we just started seeing lots of people coming from all over the world, not just America. We had people from Australia and New Zealand, Japan, you know, Southeast Asia. Um, and people kept telling us, like, this is the only event of its kind. You know, I, I'm a design leader in Singapore. I'm a design leader in, in South America, in Mexico. I want to get better on my craft. And this is the only place I can come to do that. Um, and so, yeah, so we were really chuffed. And so we we took the punt and we thought, well, if this worked in London, I reckon it will pretty, you know, pretty good chance it will work in New York, um, particularly because the u.s tends to be a couple of years ahead in terms of scale so we thought well if people are having these like growing problems in london they're sure as hell going to have them in new york and san francisco and yeah you know again we we, we double down we 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 bet bet the farm on on one of these you know one of these events and again we were we were lucky that it it panned out um and yeah so yeah we've been you know we've been re- and we've been really impressed with the like i say the the outpouring of love and support we've had from the from the design leadership community.
0: What makes a great conference? I assume that as a designer, you spend a lot of time actively thinking how you can design the best design experience or, sorry, conference experience for the attendees, right? So, you know, what makes a good, what separates a good conference from an average one or a bad one?
1: Well, um I mean, it's sort of similar to what makes a really great movie. You know, you can go in a bunch of different directions. You know, um, a lot of people that are organizing conferences focus on production value. A Big stage, you've got all the the high-tech sort of equipment, they've got beautiful, you know, lights and, and, and sort of signage, you've got the best food, they've got all this stuff. But when you go there if they haven't put effort into curating the content, it can feel quite hollow. I think a lot of conferences focus more on the sort of whiz-bang kind of visceral kind of design experience. And also quite often they focus on the brands of the speakers. So I've been to dozens of conferences where it's a lineup of really, really impressive looking companies, but actually the content is, is, is hollow, it's shallow, it's poor. So my focus is completely the opposite. I'm more like an art house sort of director. You know, we tend not to do these big flashy performances. You know, our conferences are quite small. Our budgets are quite frugal. We put all of our effort on curating speakers. You know, you'd be surprised at the number of people that won't, the conference organisers, that won't pay their speakers they won't pay for them to fly over, put them up in hotels, but will pay for a really, really impressive video graphic on, on the stage. For me, completely opposite. Like our production values are very low, but people come back time and time again because we are providing them with, a con- with content that they want. And content in the form of genuine human stories that they connect to, that they can see themselves in the situations that our speakers explain the speakers aren't going up there and saying, you know, we're perfect and all you people in the audience are, are idiots. Our speakers are going up there and saying, you are us. You know, you could be on this stage. We've sol- we've experienced all the kind of problems that you've experienced. And here are some of our ways of, of, of dealing with it. And so audience kind of, yeah, you know, you, you sit next to some of our audience members and they're just filling up notebooks full of notes and recommendations, which is amazing. Um, and they're, they're feeling seen, they're feeling heard. And so if the content's good all the other things kind of, you know, sort of fade into insignificance. But that doesn't mean that we don't try and find great values and, you know, we don't try and make sure that, you know, we have, you know, we, you know, we've got a, a, a great coffee company that we work with, that we bring them up from Brighton that, you know, that, 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 you know, make amazing coffee we give coffee beans to our speakers in in the goodie bags and, and the coffee company will grind them there live. so you do you know so you've got the freshest coffee um, you know we have juice bars and, and and kombucha bars and stuff to try and make the experience as pleasant as possible um, but really a lot of that is in in service of allowing our speakers and, and attendees to connect you know, we want people to stay in the room. We want people to have genuine conversations, de- genuine human connections, um, and so that's the reason why we kind of we, we kind of, sort of do these sort of you know peripheral things. We've worked really hard on our, our carbon footprint as well. We've done a lot of sort of you know work on finding the you know the the right receptacles for water. You know, we need to give people water so they can drink, but you know. Um, it turns out tins are are more environmentally sort of you know friendly than than bottles or plastics. Giving people reusable reusable cups you know in their goodie bag is much better than people over the course of three or four days you know burning through loads of you know recycled cups. Um, making sure the signage is recyclable and low impact. Making sure anything we give out to our our, our users our, our our sort of you know attendees is is recyclable, reusable. Um, uh, you know something that they want rather than something that 's going to end up on our on our trash heap um, you know it 's a challenge for conferences because quite often they are flying people in, and so there is a big carbon footprint there. But the other stage, I would rather have like you know five speakers from the u s come to London than fifty people from London fly to a conference in the u s to be able to see the same speakers. so I think you know on the whole um, yeah on the whole we you know we try to minimize our our, our sort of footprint. And that's been really, really fun, and, and we'll, we'll carry on finding out ways to to, to do that. Um, but, but yeah, you know, the, the 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 content really is the is the thing that draws people in and keeps them coming back.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do you make sure? So, if this is the focus point for you, right? If your team is focusing on getting the best people and getting the best speakers, how do you actually make that happen? What is the process behind finding the best people? Because most conferences, I guess, just focus, as you said, on big brands. Oh, that person works there, so we can put there the, whatever the name of the company is, and then this is gonna draw in a lot of people. But if you invite people who are not that famous or, you know, don't work for the big companies, you maybe have a marketing problem. Like so yeah. marketing problem and also like how do you make sure these people that are not so famous they're good when they come and speak?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean you're right. I think the reason why a lot of people focus on the brand of the speaker rather than the, the content is a marketing thing. It's kind of like well, if we have Google and Facebook and Airbnb and all these people at our event, you know, we can you – know, it, it helps us sell. Now, we have a lot of those people at our event as well, but we're not leading with, you know, this is the person from this company. We're leading with this is a person who's got a fantastic story to tell. Um, so, you know – the reason we do that isn't, you know, you know, the, these kind of big companies have got you know, interesting challenges that they're facing. And that's the reason why we have them rather than marketing in terms of how we do it. I mean, I, I'm fortunate as a speaker. I speak at a lot of conferences, maybe less so now, but these days I probably speak at, you know, you know, 10 conferences a year um, or eight or 10 conferences a year. I used to speak a lot more. So I get to go to lots of conferences and see lots of speakers I probably in the course of a year watch well over 200, you know, 300 um, conference talks, videos, probably more thinking about it. It's probably about 200 per conference I organize. So I get to see a lot of content and, you know, of the 200 talks I see, you know, 10 might be, um, you know, of the quality and of the style and of the, the content that, that, that I think is a, is a good fit. Um, also, I rely heavily on my network of people. So a lot of speakers that have come in the past will say, oh, you know, we, you know there's an amazing person you should meet. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really, really good. And often I'll, I'll reach out to them and, and, and try and get a handle of if they've not spoken before, if they don't have video online, they might share me some of their ideas. They might share me a meeting post they've written, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we try as best as we can to um, find diverse voices Um, You know, a lot of our speakers have spoken before. I mean, particularly with leading design, because the people that are in leadership roles tend to be quite senior. um, Often they have, you know, they have spoken before. But there are always people that are kind of experienced leaders that that don't sort of like, you know, have that sort of craving of the limelight. So, you know, you work hard to kind of... um, like find new voices and every time we run a conference there's usually two or three people on there that 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 we haven't seen speak before that might not have spoken before or if they have they've spoken at a small local networking event and, and aren't kind of um you know aren't sort of exposed to the world and it's really really brilliant when you find a speaker that you're like well i think this person is gonna be amazing but i'm not sure you take a pump And they turn out to be like one of the best speakers of the whole conference. And we've had that plenty of times. We've been blown away by speakers in the past where we're like, oh, you know, this was a bit of a risk. But this person has really, really paid off. So it's fun. It's fun seeing that. And I think for me, again, one of the weird things I find about a lot of conferences is they haven't really paid any sort of attention to the story arc you know like mm-hmm. you'll see speakers and you're like well that person's talking let's say just it's a general UX conference or design conference you know there'll be a person you know on first talking about design systems and then three talks later there'll be somebody else talking about design systems and you're like well why did you put those two other random non-related talks in the middle why didn't you join them up why didn't you create some kind of arc or flow mm-hmm. and I'm always amazed that the conference organizers do so little of that and so we try and tell a story throughout our conferences so you it's so a leading design generally on the first day it's personal stories um, on the second day it's stories about the team and the organization um, the first day kind of starts usually with kind of like personal development skills you know to be a great leader these are the skills you need to develop but then we usually sort of veer more into like, well, you know, now you've developed your skills, here are some individual challenges you've faced. Maybe you've faced bias in the workplace. Maybe you've, you've had to deal with burnout. Maybe, you know, you've had to fire people and you've had, you know, and that's been a really, really, you know, traumatic experience, you know, looking at kind of self-care and, and looking at the, the leader as a whole. And then the second day, once we've kind of dealt with the individual, And once the leader is strong enough, then they can look after their team. So, how do you find people? How do you grow them? How do you develop them? How do you you share design around the the sort of organization? And so, each of our conferences has this really sort of lovely story arc um, that starts quite deep and personal, but then ends with practical, useful information that people can take away and start using tomorrow. And if we've crafted it the other way around, then it would be a different experience. But then people would end up with a co- quite emotional, intense day. And, you know, that could have, you know, that, that could be quite challenging for people. So starting emotional and then and then leading to practical means that you you kind of, you know, peak end rule. You get a beautiful high on the first day, but then you get real relevant practical, you know, um, output on the second day. And, and, yeah, and a lot of our events, you know, we, we sort of craft interesting narratives throughout the day. And so that's another other challenge faced with finding speakers often it's not just about a case of like people who can really give a good talk but finding people who can fit in with the story you're trying to tell so i kind of almost liken it like i'm a, a casting like agent or casting director for a movie you know you might have a great you know sort of lead um but you might want to find you know a, another actor that, that that fits in her husband's role and so like you know you know you might have two or three amazing kind of like, you know, male actors, but if they don't fit chemistry wise, or you can't picture these two people together in a a relationship or business context or whatever, there's no point having them. Mm -hmm. So this is also one of the challenges when people say, well, I'd love to speak at your conference. Well, you're great, but you don't fit the narrative arc or the story we're telling this year, but you might fit next year. And so, you know, and invariably when we meet people, you know, it might be two or three years before they're the perfect fit for the story we're trying to tell that year.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, just hearing you explain the whole thinking behind this process, just explain why this conference is so successful and uh, you know how you bring people to emotional stage and then to rational stage. That's really cool, really cool. So let's maybe have a look now more detail at the latest conference you had in London. Um, and what, are, what were the big themes? What were the big takeaways? What were the learnings? If you could share with with us like what felt was important, what was the narrative maybe first, and then what came out of the conference
1: well like I said I sort of the 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 narrative that that we had in London was the one I sort of described earlier um uh, so I won't sort of repeat the r- repeat the um r- repeat the sort of pattern of the, of, the, of the couple of days mm-hmm. but I think there were there were a couple of really interesting um sort of outcomes I mean I think this is one topic has been Bubbling away for a while, and I think it's something that's probably close to your heart as well, which is a realization. Well, a couple of things. So, first of all, I think designers, you know, designers are wonderful, you know, emotive, creative people. But quite often, because they are um, also quite unique in the companies they work in, they often, you know, sort of have lower resourcing than engineering. They usually have lower status than product or, or finance or what have you. They often kind of, you know, othered. You know, and because of that, they often other the rest of the organization. So you see a lot of the time designers bitching about product or marketing or the business. And I think one of the first realizations, and I think it's really important to keep iterating this. And this is something that came out of the conference is you are not other from the business. You are part of the business. And if you, you know, if you take yourself out of that, you are not being, uh, you know, as um, as good a partner as you can be. So first is realizing realizing that you are the business. And secondly, if you are the business, you have to have a much better understanding of how the business works. And I think one of the reasons that designers get really frustrated is because um, they struggle to explain the value that they can deliver in a way that is meaningful to the people that need to be taught. Mm -hmm. And the design leaders that I meet that are successful Some of them are successful because they're super creative and everyone goes, oh, wow, you're the crazy creative person. We'll do whatever you want. But more often than not, it's because they have learnt to navigate um, the political um, sort of systems of business and know the right people to talk to to get budget, know the right people to talk to to unlock resources, know the right way of communicating what they do so that it resonates from a business perspective not just a we're doing the right thing we're caring about users oh isn't design you know amazing perspective and so um, being better qualified to talk the language of business in a way that you are perceived as a equal i think is really important i kind of sometimes joke that um, that designers have got a seat at the table, but it's a high chair, and they're sat in the corner playing with their crayons while all the sort of the the business people are actually making the decisions. Um, and then every time, you know, every now and again, you know, the the designer will show their their picture, and everyone will go, "Oh, that's lovely, dear," and then go back to the work. And so we need to kind of can't be sitting at the table but being in a high chair. We need to be an active participant of that conversation, and that also requires us to have a position on things that aren't design related. Um, and so. You know, I, I know quite a few of my design leader friends that have embarked on MBAs um, in order to give them a certain level of legitimacy or a certain level of fluency. Um, I know many more people who are, you know, participating in various online courses. I hear there's some good ones out there um, in order to kind of increase their their, their fluency in um, in this kind of sort of stuff and um yeah and so that's i think that was a that's a really big um theme of last year and so i think last year a lot of our speakers were saying you know we had four or five speakers that were saying hey you need to understand business better and so i think this year and next year we kind of probably kind of take some of that and go well that's great who can we bring in that can help teach our design leaders to be a little bit more fluent in this stuff Mm -hmm. so that was kind of that was kind of one big one big sort of topic and takeaway i think Another obvious ever-present theme is one of um, uh, diversity and making sure that when we are hiring teams, we are hiring uh, groups of people that have a a broad, collective sort of background of experience and not just hiring homogenous teams that look the same or, or talk the same, that come from the same background. But also you know, um, that, that can be quite tough. You know, if you are the first, you know, you know, sort of African-American person on a team, if you are the first kind of like Indian designer on a team, if you are the only woman, you know, regularly in a meeting of 10 people, um, you can, you know, you can feel sort of quite um, left out. And so a lot of the, the people that, that spoke sort of shared their own personal experiences of the challenges that they've faced. Um and I think that was a really, really good um, opportunity for other design leaders to sort of reflect on this and make sure that when they are hiring, when they were recruiting, when they are assembling teams, they do so in a, in a sort of considered way. And I think a lot of that also is reflecting on some of the anxiety that we've been facing in technology over the last three or four years around us you know, maybe creating designs that had unintended consequences. You know, there's a lot of ethical conversations happening at the moment. And I suspect a lot of the challenges—not a lot of them—but I suspect some of the challenges we're facing, we might not have faced if we had design teams that were more representative of the users, and if we had design teams that were thinking more around how products can be used, abused, misused, etc. So that was that was another sort of you know uh, sort of big thread, um, and I think maybe. Um, a, a, th- a third thread, which is, you know, which is, which is always ever present, is just, you know, the, the challenger burnout, you know, um, you know, design leaders are often finding themselves in quite tricky situations, they have increasing demands from the design team, um, particularly, you know, sort of younger sort of millennial kind of Gen Z designers have very, very high expectations of of what their job should be, what their career path should be. Often, quite rightly so, but that puts a higher level of burden on design leaders, many of whom have never had any formal training. Maybe they've never learned how to do a great one-on-one or a great, you know, deliver sort of, you know, difficult feedback or explain to somebody why, you know, just because they're eighteen months out of a general assembly course, you know, they're not ready to make director yet. Um, and so, you know, this can be quite challenging. Um, and a lot of a lot of the stories were stories of burnout of people you know running you know burning the candle at both ends, running too fast and and, and smashing into brick walls and so I think you know in order to be a good leader, you do need to be able to take care of yourself um, and I think one of the one of the challenging things for designers is because designers tend to be quite empathetic they also tend to particularly and we learn a lot about servant leadership often designers are understandably putting their staff, their team and their needs above one's own needs. And that's incredibly laudable and it's a great way of managing and it's the right way of doing it. But you also have to look after yourself. And so self care and getting that balance right was a was another kind of big um, big theme of the of the event. Have you ever had a burnout? Experienced um, one? I don't believe I have but I think that's partly because I mean, I'm in a very fortunate position that I, you know, know, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, entrepreneurship is tough, um, but at the same time, you get to define how you run your own business. Um, You get to hopefully define the culture, hopefully define the values, hopefully define what you will and won't do for money. Um, And, you know, so while it's hard, And while you do end up um, taking on a lot of responsibility, um, what you don't find yourself in is this weird cognitive dissonance a lot of design leaders find themselves in, whereby they know what is not working. They don't have the power and agency to fix it. And when you don't have the power and agency to fix something, that can be incredibly stressful. If you have the power and agency to fix things and you don't fix things, well, you know, you're just not doing your job as good as you could. Um, which sucks, but I think you're much less likely to get these high levels of stress um, than when you have, you know, sort of, you know, a situation where you are fighting for you what you believe is right, but you don't actually have the mechanisms to, to change. I think the other thing is to be completely honest. Like Clearleft has always been a slow growing business. We're a small thirty person design agency in Brighton that you know has more work than we generally. Um, uh can satisfy deliberately because that then means that we're not always chasing the next project it means that we can be a little bit selective about the work that we do and that that gives us a little bit of freedom to choose whereas if you're working in a fast moving startup where the head of product says we need you to go out and hire 20 developers or 20 designers tomorrow um you have no control over that you're just being thrown work mm-hmm. i think the other thing that what happens with a lot of designers is, is we just want we want to help people we want to please people you know one of the i can't remember who it was but one of the speakers uh sort of one of our leading design events would basically say like the best thing you can do as a design leader is learn how to say no you know developers are great at it you know developers often their default you know position is no can you do this no can you deliver this no and then they might come back to you in a week's time and go well actually we can and here's how what ends up happening is design leaders are just are just so pleased that someone's talking to them so pleased that the head of product has asked them to do something or the head of marketing has asked them to do something they'll be like sure i can do that and then they fit it in in their lunch hour and they fit it in at the weekends they fit it in the evenings and suddenly they find they're doing the job of, of two or three people and that's when that's when you burn out when you when you can't say no and you burn out because you're doing a job that you love you know a lot of people end up not burning out because they can say no partly because they don't like their job and they're not engaged designers are often too engaged for their own good so learning to say no learning to push back learning to say or at least not no just say not yet you know we can do that thing for you but we have to let this other thing drop or we can do this thing for you but in three months time or we can do this thing for you but you need to sign off budget so I can go out and hire two freelancers and we're just too nice and too willing to help that we don't have those conversations and um Yeah. And then burnout happens. So it's not something that I've had. Also the other thing, to be honest, you know, I'm quite lucky. I get to travel around a lot. I I have lots of holidays, you know, I live in the UK, you know, we've got, we've got good social sort of healthcare and all that kind of stuff. If I was, you know, working in the U S where we had two weeks holiday a year, um, and you could be fired at a moment's notice for not even doing anything wrong. Again, that would be quite a stressful situation. So, um, it's not something I've experienced personally. Um, but I know a lot of people that have, um, and yeah, it sucks.
0: Let's go a bit deeper here. I think this saying no is super important. And I'll give you uh, an extreme case or extreme situation maybe and let's break it down and see how what your advice for this designer would be. So let's say you are a junior designer, right? And you just joined in the last six months a new company and you know you get to work on something that you feel is just not productive, not correct, not the right thing to work on. How do you say no in these situations where you just join a company or you know like you're being seen as just a junior person who should just do whatever the other people tell him or her to do? So how do you react in that situation?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really tough question, and the answer is really that I don't know. I think the the, the perspective I was coming from earlier was from the perspective of somebody who has been hired in a leadership role Mm -hmm. to guide a part of an organization forward and in that situation you have more authority to say no if you are a junior um it can be really tough for a start like i said you know a lot of designers often um you know you know can come across as a little bit kind of difficult to work with because um because we have this sort of ivory tower view of of design and i think as a junior designer. Um, you know, on your first job, immediately saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Kind of, you know, you've got to be careful about not branding yourself as, as difficult. You know, I think, you know, but also the other thing is like, you know, as a junior designer, you know, whether you think the thing that you've been asked to do is right or wrong, you probably don't have enough context at the moment to really, really know. You don't have enough influence to necessarily change the, the decision. And, you haven't built up enough yeah kind of like capital equity for people to to trust your judgment. Mm-hmm. I think as a designer as a, as a younger designer, what you need to do is you need to first of all demonstrate your value so even if you're not sure that the thing is right, um, you know, if you can come up with another way that will make that will be even better, it's definitely worth having that conversation. you know go to your boss and say, look you know, I don't think this is the best way possible. I think there's another way forwards." And that conversation might play out. Um, I think choosing not to do the thing that you've been told to do and doing something else could be quite challenging because there might be a whole bunch of reasons. There might be some kind of business deal going on that is required, you know, this is a requirement of. And you might be there going, well, I don't think any users will want this. And you haven't been told brief that actually, well, someone's just spent a million pounds on this and we need to get it over the line quickly. So you've got to be careful there. I think if you think there's a better way, do the thing that you've been asked to do, but then prototype the better way. Yeah. And at least you, you can then show some variations. Like one of the things that designers are great at doing is the whole kind of double diamond. the are going broad and the are going narrow. A lot of executives and a lot of bosses quite often um, jump to the first most obvious solution for a thing. So it's possible that what you've been asked to do is just the first most obvious solution. And that's the one you should work on initially, but it's perfectly within your right if you've got some time and space to go and explore a couple of other options. And it might turn out that those are better. It might turn out that those are not. But again, you know, as as a good designer, you should at least explore the edges. Then come back and explain why you think your idea is better than the others. But also, you know, if they say, well, no, this is definitely what we want to go and do, go ahead and do it. The other tool that I think designers have in their toolbox is, is research. Um... And, you know, that might be kind of user research in the sense of like, oh, that's great. You know, we'll prototype this thing. I'll do it. We'll put it out there. But let's just sense check. If we feel that there's, you know, that there's, um, you know, some feeling that this thing might work, let's just do some really, really light testing. And it doesn't have to be like hiring a, you know, a lab for for a week and, and expensive, you know, kind of uh, testers. It could just be some cafe testing around the corner, you know, you know, buying people coffee and asking them to look at your thing and then at least if you can go back and and provide evidence for why the thing that you've been asked to do you didn't think it was right and say well actually look i tested these two variations and the thing you asked me to do was okay but three out of the five people really struggled with this area here so again evidence based um, um kind of you know pushback rather than kind of like i'm a designer you should trust me believe what i say kind of like ego driven pushback um but yeah, like I say, you know, sometimes you might have to pick your battles, and you might have to let a few smaller things go, to to demonstrate value, um, to show and build trust, so that when something comes across your desk that you think is really important, you have the credibility to say, well, look, actually, this is, I think this is a really really bad idea, and here's why. Um, but this is the problem. Like, I think designers generally don't go in with the evidence; they go in with the "this is a terrible idea," not, and here is, you know. Here is an example of this in the wild. Here's some usability testing results. Here is an article from Jared Spall around why this is a terrible idea. You know, um, bring some evidence rather than just opinion. Yeah, yeah.
0: So another topic that's pretty much related to what we discuss right now with uh, juniors saying no, but also with uh, one of the topics you mentioned or one of the learnings you mentioned from the conference, which is this lack of business literacy, is also the design education. So as someone who has so much experience with hiring designers and also running design conferences, I wanted to pick your brain on this topic. So what is your opinion of the current state of design education? Let's begin broad.
1: Yes. No, I mean, again, design education is an area that I'm fascinated with and frustrated with in equal measure. Um, So I would say that globally there are probably a dozen or two dozen institutions that have courses that um, operate at a very high level. You know, there are, there are organizations, you know, in in the i S I've, I've met some amazing graduates from the SVA course MFA on interaction design, and they consistently push out really, really amazing graduates. Um, The, uh, university in the north of Denmark, whose name escapes me now. That's really terrible. Um, uh, it will come back to me in a second. Uh, there's, there's a really, really great uh, education institution in the north of Denmark. CIID. Uh, yeah, that's it. CIID. Yeah. Also, they've got an amazing um, uh, group of lecturers, many many visiting kind of lecturers that come from um, industry. You might even do stuff there yourself. I don't know. And they push out a really, really high uh, level of quality so if you are a like a younger person or not even a younger person if you're somebody that wants to break into design um you know getting on one of these courses will set you up really really strongly because you'll learn really really good techniques that are practical you'll be taught by industry experts that will have connections And when you go into the workplace, people will see that you've worked, you know, you've you've studied in these places and there will be a reasonable level of respect. However, I would say, you know, what is it? 90% of everything is shit. I can't remember. Is it 80? Is it 95? But basically, the vast majority of university courses are not like this. Um, The vast majority of university courses, I think, are still, um, you know, massively out of date. They're often run by people that haven't been in industry for five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years. If they've been in industry at all, you know, often they are run by graphic design departments. They don't really get technology or they're run by engineering departments. They don't really get design or they're run by business departments. They don't get either. (laughs) Um, And um, they are often just filling a gap. And I, 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 I still, to this day speak to lots of recent graduates that have gone through these courses and felt cheated, basically. They felt that they've, they've spent very, very large amounts of money to get a substandard education that they would have been better off um, uh, learning on the job. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I am not the world's biggest fan of General Assembly. And again, I think the General Assembly and organisations like it um, have quality varies dramatically geographically depending on who is leading the course but i have seen a lot of people come out of the london general assembly course their their 10 or 12 week um uh interaction design intensive who i believe have come out after 12 weeks having the same or better um quality of output so not, I can't attest to the quality of education, but if I look at a if I look at a um, portfolio of a General Assembly graduate in London, I could probably not tell the difference between that and someone that spent three years you know, on a on a bachelor's degree. And actually often they're much better because often the General Assembly courses are really, really focused around producing portfolios that are employable. Whereas if you look at you know the majority of, of bachelor's degrees. And you'll have like one shonky web project, you'll have some really awful service design project, you'll have one really bad art installation digital product, and it's fun, but you're producing graduates that then basically just have no no value or employability in the workplace. Um, and I think so. I think if you are going to spend you know if you're going to spend three years on a bachelor's degree. Um, you may, you know, in order to get into the industry, you might be better off in many instances just doing a a, a 10 week um, general assembly course and then going straight into industry. If you are wanting to really, really nail your career, a master's course at, at one of the one of the bigger universities that I mentioned, you know, might be worthwhile. Um, you know, I was speaking to a young designer only yesterday who who decided that rather than going to university and end up in debt, he would um, spend a year um, being a intern and loved it and then got, you know, a second job and a third job and a fourth job and, you know, has now worked on some of the biggest, most interesting, you know, design teams in the UK on some of the most biggest, interesting, you know, startup projects and hasn't looked back. And rather than ending up with 30, 40,000 pounds worth of debt, he's ended up with an amazing portfolio of work, great work experience and so, yeah, for a lot of younger designers, I actually think, you know, it might be right to skip degrees altogether and go straight into the workplace. Um, you know, that requires a, a little bit of, you know, kind of self-starter uh, attitude. Um, but one of the great things about design is the barrier to entry is quite low. You know, you can, you can you know, get a, a, a copy of some design software, you can, you know, um Design a, a website or product or service for yourself or a friend, or you know, um, just explore and play. And you can probably learn as much, you know, self-directed as as you can, you know, in a in a in a in many three-year courses. So that's that's my position, really. Yeah. So, for example, my
0: wife, she did the same, right? She took like a, a course at Career Foundry for six months, and now she has a job. So she she's been working as a UX designer for two years, and it is definitely catapulted her path and career into design. One thing you mentioned in there was employable portfolio. What is that? What is
1: employable portfolio? Okay. Um, So as somebody who is hiring designers, I want to see examples in their portfolio that are similar to the kind of problems I want them to solve. So, as an agency, you know we might work with an airline we might work with an app company we might work with an e commerce store and so, having a portfolio that demonstrates to me that you have worked in these spaces or if you thought about these spaces um, is really useful and you know these might be real live jobs if you're a little bit more progressed in your career they might just be you know um college courses you know your college lecturer or your general assembly kind of guide might have said okay well today i want you to you know redesign the in-flight you know entertainment system of an airline and that's great if you're a service design company that wants to hire those kind of people um what i often see is and one of this is one of the challenges because then this gets into a question around is education around making you job ready or is education around immersing you in a, in a, in a, um, in a, um, a field of study, a field of practice. Um, for many people, they go to university because they want to become job ready. And if that is your focus, then coming out with a, a set of um, portfolio pieces that look like the kind of thing you could be hired to do, I think is really useful. If you come out of a university course, and like I say, you've got a portfolio piece that is a photography, you know, um, project. One is an interactive LED light, you know, exhibit. One of them is a service design project for getting needles to sub-Saharan Africa. And you're going to a design agency, or you're going to, you know, a fast-moving, you know, tech scale-up that is focused on building apps and that kind of stuff. They probably look at your portfolio and say, well, that's really interesting but how does this interactive light exhibit and how does this, you know, service design project in Africa relate to us shipping the next version of our banking app. Um, and it's a really tough call. And these people might be super talented, but if they can't demonstrate um, relevant skills as somebody else can, then they're going to be at a disadvantage. Um, and so, yeah. So, so I think, that's one angle i think the other angle just around portfolios is that a lot of people focus purely on the output of a portfolio so you see many people that their portfolio is just here's the end product and as a hiring person that end product right. is useful it's pretty it's nice but yeah the process is important you know when i was at when i was at school you know, my, my lecturer or university, my math lecturer said, you know, you get 50% of the points for knowing the right answer and 50% of the work points for showing the workings. Mm. Because the answer demonstrates you got it right, but you don't know if you managed to get there accidentally. The workings demonstrate that you really understood what you were doing. And it's exactly the same with design. You could be just a really lucky, talented, creative person that spends a lot of time on dribble and can mimic trends and on the surface, it looks really pretty. But did it solve the problem you're we setting out to solve? Did you have a repeatable process so if I gave you a different problem, you could, you know, follow that process in order to solve a different kind of problem? Um, do you know what worked and what didn't? You know, do you can you look at this point and say, well, actually, I diverged here, and this is why, and I went down this cul de sac and it didn't work. You know, the other thing is a lot of designers on their CV or their LinkedIn profile, but have a big list of things that they can claim to do. Some of them, they'll have a little pie chart or a little bar graph that says, well, I'm 80% good at prototyping. I'm 100% good at design thinking. I'm well, a great, but give me evidence. If you're saying that you're 80%, you know, amazing at, 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 at doing a user journey map, I want to see a user journey map. I want to see five years of journey maps. I want to see high fidelity. I want to see low fidelity. I want to see one that you've just done in an afternoon with sticky notes. I want to see one that, you know, solves a complex problem. I want to see one that solves a simple problem. Evidence this. Because otherwise, what I assume is by saying that you've got 80% experience of journey mapping is you probably read a medium post. You probably read, oh, I kind of know what a journey map is. I reckon if I got asked to make a journey map, I could give a, have a crack at it. Mm. That's very different from saying, well, here's five journey maps I've done, and this is why I chose this approach on this one, this why I chose this approach on this one. And this journey map, I was just using it to think through a problem. This journey map was deliverable in order to solve a strategic problem that I pitched to the board at this company in order to sort of facilitate this change. And so, yeah, I wanna see your workings. I wanna see photos of you doing stuff. I wanna see you leading teams. I wanna see you sketching, I wanna see you prototyping. And I, see you, I want to see you doing this across a bunch of mediums. Again, like, you know, a lot of people find crutches. A lot of designers, particularly product designers, will be, yeah, you know, I'm brilliant at using Figma. But maybe you go into a company and Figma isn't their thing. Maybe they're using something else. So I want you to be able to demonstrate to me that you're not just using one tool as a crutch. If I say to you, okay, well, I'm sorry, but you've got to use Adobe XD on this project, you're not going to be like, oh, I don't know how to do that. You're going be like, great, you know, because It's not a piece of software that you have learned. It's a process that you've learned, and you can apply that process to a whole range of tools and outputs and outcomes.
0: Mm, Amazing. Great advice. Andy, I think we covered a lot of uh, topics, and you shared the current state of design community with us. Uh, So when is the next conference that we could come and uh, immerse ourselves in the experience?
1: Um, I appreciate the opportunity of a plug that's very kind of you. I wasn't expecting it but but I will I'll try and take advantage of that. Um so I believe that we probably have about 30 tickets left for Leading Design San Francisco. And Leading Design San Francisco is the beginning of March. I'm going to say the 3rd or the 4th. I'm probably wrong fourth. there but 4th to 6th. There you go. See, I wasn't prepared for this but you've you have done. So yeah. So and that that would be really really good fun. I'm so excited. Um about some of the speakers we've got there, particularly Julie Zhu. Julie Zhu is an amazing design leader. Her books and her writing is just outstanding. I mean, obviously there's tons of other amazing people speaking, but we got Julie Zhu a little bit sort of last minute. I've been trying to get her to speak at Leading Design for a while, and we managed to kind of nail that down quite recently. And so she's gonna be amazing as is everybody else. Um, We are just starting to plan leading design london which will be in november sometime i think it's maybe the 6th to the 8th of november um, also
0: fourth to sixth actually Fourth <laughs> to
1: sixth. Oh, okay okay well yeah there you go so fourth to six november and um yeah and, and so those two leading design events are, are coming up and they should be really good fun amazing and you also have some smaller meetups right is that just in london and san francisco or do you also plan to do them elsewhere yeah, we really want to do them elsewhere. I mean, I'm going to be I'm going to be heading over to after the leading design in San Francisco. I'm going to be heading over to South by Southwest. I haven't been to South by for about three four years. I love Austin. I I've been through kind of a bit of a roller coaster with South by. I used to love it, then I hated it, and now I quite like it again. Um, but I'm going to be in Austin. Um, you know, uh, end of March, sort of. I think, sort of like 18th or 17th of March. I'm probably going to be organising a little design leadership get together there. I'm speaking at awards conference um, in a couple of weeks' time in in Amsterdam. I'm probably going to be organising a little design leadership get together there. We're doing bigger leadership sort of meetups in London. We're probably going to start doing them in New York. And yeah, and if there are local groups that want to sort of put design leadership events on. You know, please do come and, and and give us a shout. You know, we want we want designers to have a local community that they can draw upon. Um, so the more of these kind of like meetups and and networks and, you know, we 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 run this uh, design leadership Slack channel, leading design Slack channel. We've got about 1,300 members. And a lot of the members on there will do little events. And it might just be, oh, a, a dinner for six people here or like a meet-up for 20 people there. Nice. But that's how, that's how kind of like, you know, communities grow and networks form and, and, and kind of, you know, movements happen. So, yeah, you know, design, like I said, has finally got a seat at the table. And we all need to kind of help each other out to kind of, you know, um, embed that and, and, and help design, you know, hit the levels that we know it can.
0: So if somebody has an idea to host a meetup in their city, how can they reach out to, to you to, to make it
1: happen? Well, if you're a member of the Leading Design Slack channel, hit me up on that. If you're not a member of the Leading Design channel and you'd like to join, um, you can reach out to me on Twitter or go to leadingdesign.com um, uh, um, or um, yeah, drop me an email at andy at com. The Leading Design Slack channel is really aimed at kind of more senior design leaders. So it's people that are sort of managing teams um, rather than sort of, you know, like, you know, design lead with three or four designers. You know, we've got people on there that, you know, average probably are leading teams of like 20 to 50 people. Mm -hmm. So it's more on that kind of senior level. But if you fit in that sort of a category and you want to join a hook me up, Um, Or the other thing is just to organize one and then email me afterwards and say, hey, Andy, like, you know, we ran a design dinner and it was great. And here's some pictures. Um, And it's always nice to see people doing stuff independently. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Cool. Andy. Well, thanks again for sharing experience, taking the time to talk to me and to talk to basically to listeners.
1: It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. And yeah, I'd love to do this again in, in a couple of years time.
0: So that's everything in today's episode. If you have any comments about this episode, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or just send me an email at alan at beyondusers.com. And again, if you want to learn more about business to become a better design leader, uh, you can sign up for a seven-day mini MBA course, um, which is completely free. And yeah, you can find it on beyondusers.com.